I'm taking a little bit of a risk this morning because I want us to look at the topic of worship today. And this has been sort of a hot-button topic in the church lately, especially in the past 10 to 15 years. As, as I've been a part of ministry in the church, I've seen this happen. It's always been, worship has always been a discussion in the history of the church. It's not just something that we've been talking about the past 10 or 15 years. It's been a discussion throughout the entire history of the church. <clears throat> but as the church grows and as time goes by, the look of worship has changed over time. The sound of our worship has changed over time. And the perspectives and the opinions about worship are very different and diverse. And they have changed over time. The, the, the perspectives of worship have changed a lot. I remember as a teenager in the church growing up, I went to church here in Lindale at, at Park Avenue right down the street. And there were two very different pictures of worship that I was exposed to as a child and a teenager growing up in the church. The first one was actually in my home church. Uh, we had no projector screens. Uh, there were no other instruments in our church other than the piano and the organ. Um, there was really not a lot of congregational participation in church other than the Baptist hymnal that we sang from. You probably see one in the front of your pews and, and you're thinking, we don't use that very much. It's because we have uh, this technology. But that's, what we, that's, that's pretty much all we had. And that was really the only participation in worship that there was. Now, occasionally there would be a choir cantata during a special occasion or a holiday. And that was special. Or if we had a homecoming at our church, there might be a Baptist quartet that came in and did a concert. And we all loved that. But, but as a kid even, and a teenager, I always felt like those cantatas and those uh, groups that would come in and sing for us, it always felt very performance-oriented to me. It was as if I was sitting and listening um, kind of being entertained by, by, the, by the music. I enjoyed it. It lifted up the Lord, but um, I'd never felt like a participant in that. It was, it was very much just I'm kind of sitting and taking it in and watching. The second picture that I had as a student was uh, in summer camp. I grew up in the youth group, went to summer camp every year, and summer camp is a big part of youth ministry for many reasons, and I could explain those to you, but that'd be another topic, another sermon. Uh, but we would go off to the beach, and there would be a musician on the stage, and it would either be somebody who played an electric keyboard or a guitar, which were two instruments that we never had in our church. Um, and they would tell us to stand up and clap, and they were going to teach us these songs, and they would teach us these songs. And, we, and these were songs that we never sang at church. The songs we sang in youth group at summer camp were songs that we never, I never heard at church. The only time we heard those songs at church was if we ever had a youth Sunday. And they would let the teenagers kind of, quote, do our thing. And they would let us get up front. And we would sing our songs. And the adults would, would enjoy that. And they would let us do that. But when I think back at some of those songs that we did when I was a teenager growing up, um, they were so participation-focused and so, so focused on getting you to participate that they, some barely even mentioned God or Jesus at all. Um, and w one example that I could think of, there was this song that we sang called Alleluia. And some of you guys that are in my generation, you'll know this one. You may not, but, but this, is how, this is how this song went. And, and if you don't know, I'll teach it to you. It went, Alleluia, Alleluia. You all know that one? Alleluia, Alleluia. 
Okay, there you go. That, now, that's great. That's a biblical proclamation of praise to God, and that's awesome. But that was pretty much it. The rest of the song, this is how the rest of it went. Hug another neck, hug a neck next to you. Hug another neck and sing along. And everybody's all over the place. Hug another neck, hug a neck next to you. And if you're sitting by the pretty girl, you hope they sang, kiss another cheek, kiss a cheek next to you. Because they would throw that out sometimes. Kiss another cheek and sing along. So yeah, it's like you made sure you sat by somebody that you wanted to get a kiss on the cheek. Or, or you know, pinch another arm, pinch an arm next to you. Or some, some kind of corny thing like that, and we would do that, and we would sing, and we would think, ha, 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 it was so funny. But it was great for participation. I'm not sure that it was so great for worship. And so there were these two very contrasting pictures of worship that I saw growing up in the church, and, and after thinking about worship when I was a student, um, I thank the Lord and praise Him that the perspectives of worship in youth ministry has changed quite a bit. But in the 16 years that I've been a youth pastor, I've learned that everyone's perspective of worship is very different. Because the church is so diverse. Because the church is full of diverse people. There are diverse ways that we, and views that we carry into our concept of worship. And that's Okay. I heard once someone compare the church to a bouquet of flowers. What makes a bouquet of flowers beautiful is that it's an array of lots of different and various kinds of flowers. And that's what the church is. And so because there's various um, viewpoints, some of us prefer, prefer or believe that the best worship comes from traditional hymns that were written hundreds of years ago, which really are foundational of all of our church music. And then there's some, some folks who believe that the best worship comes from the sounds of the new generations of worship songwriters. Uh, songs that are, have been written in the past two, three years. That those are the best songs for worship because they're fresh and they're new. So that when the questions ask, what kind of worship is best? Um, what style of worship do we think God prefers? And where does real worship come from? Um, I want to answer, I want us to answer that question this morning from the scriptures, where worship comes from. And we're going to look in Romans chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to do something a little different with the scripture that maybe you're not used to doing. But turn with me, if you would, to Romans 12, and we're going to begin in verse 1 and read verses 1 and 2, and we'll have it up on the screen for you. Verse 1, Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and this is what he says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing, and perfect will. Now, I want us to focus on verse 1. But what I want us to do uh, is something that maybe you're not used to doing. Rather than unpacking verse 1 from beginning to end, we're going to go through and unpack it from end to beginning. We're going to look at verse 1 and we're going to go backwards. Because I think that's going to help us get a grasp on what Paul is trying to teach us here. So look at the very last phrase in verse 1, and this is it. This is your true and proper 
worship. Now, this is great. Because the question that we want to answer, Paul says right here, I'm going to answer you. You want to know what true and proper worship is? I'm about to show you. This is it. He's going to put it right in front of our face. So that's awesome because we often need to know that, especially something that that has lots of different opinions. Paul is going to say this is what true and proper worship is. What does true worship look like? What is the proper kind of worship for the church? So Paul says this is it. Now let's keep going backwards and add the next part of the verse backwards. To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, if we think about how the Hebrews expressed their worship in the Old Testament, the most important element or aspect of their worship was the sacrifice that they would bring. A Jew would come and bring his offering of an animal, give it to the priest, the priest would take it, slay it, place it on the altar on behalf of the person who was bringing the offering. But obviously this morning, uh, I didn't see anybody with their cows and goats tied up outside today. Did anybody bring that with you today? No, of course not. You know why? Because we're New Testament believers and there's something amazingly great that has happened for us and has been done for us. God who is the object of our worship, has provided the sacrifice that is greater than any that we could bring on our own to meet his most holy and righteous standard. He has made his own son, Jesus, the sacrifice. Amen? So there is no need for you to bring your animals to church with you. To be a blood sacrifice. Jesus has been that already for us. And the Israelites would bring their animals. But those were not living sacrifices. Those were only living sacrifices as long as they were alive and they were brought to the altar. But once the priest took it and slayed it and killed it, it was no longer a living sacrifice. It was a dead sacrifice. And so once Jesus came and gave his life for us, he became that sacrifice. And Jesus' death was powerful enough to cover all sin for all time, for all people. So there's no more need for dead sacrifices. Jesus has met that requirement. So God has no desire for you to bring a dead sacrifice to him anymore. That's what Paul is saying in this verse. So if, if God doesn't want our dead sacrifices anymore, what kind of sacrifices does he want? Living ones. Ones that are alive. Worship that is holy and pleasing to God is worship that comes from a life that is being lived sacrificially for the glory of God. This is what Romans 12:1 says. And, and this is the thing about verse 1. Paul doesn't urge believers to only offer their mouths or their voices or their songs as sacrifices to God. But he says, offer your what? Bodies. Now, there's an all-inclusive nature to that word, bodies. He wants us to offer our hands that work on a daily basis, that earn a living 
that serve people. He wants us to offer our fee, which, we, which is what takes us from place to place and where we choose to go and spend our time. He wants us to sacrifice our eyes to him that we view the world with and that we see things that are good and see things that are evil. He wants us to sacrifice our ears with which we hear and listen to the things of the world and the things of God. He wants us to sacrifice our minds that imagine the good and the bad that we may or may not do, that battleground of temptation. He wants us to offer our minds to him as a sacrifice. And yes, that also includes your mouth because he says our whole bodies. Our mouths express the things that are in our mind and the things that are in our heart. Offer your bodies. Now, where we often get it wrong, and what I'm, I'm fearful of is that there are too many Christians who enter into worship on Sunday mornings only willing to sacrifice one or two parts of your body. Now, you may have come this morning being willing to sacrifice your feet as an offering to God because you rolled out of bed, especially you guys that got up and came and ate breakfast this morning. You rolled out of bed really early, and you're hit, your feet hit the floor, and, you're, and you came, and you're here. And so you've sacrificed your, your feet, maybe, as, a, as an offering to God, but, but that's pretty much the extent of it. And some folks sit in church on Sunday morning and they think, well, I'm here, God. That's pretty awesome. You should be grateful. <laughs> and then maybe some of us go a step beyond that and not just offering our feet, but we will offer our mouths. We'll come to church and we'll actually participate. And if... If the songs that we're singing on Sunday morning are good songs, and we like them, then we'll offer our mouths as a sacrifice to God, and we'll sing the songs. But if it's one that we not really are excited about, or one that we really don't like that much, or don't enjoy, we may take a break during that song, and just give Him our feet, not our mouths, because I just don't enjoy singing that song. I'm afraid that we may have fooled ourselves as Christians into believing that if we simply come with our feet and we simply sing songs with our mouth, that God is pleased with that, that he's satisfied with that, that that's all he requires of us as worshipers. Just come and sing songs, and and I'm happy with that. I, I think that we have to take note of a passage that's in the book of Amos. Amos chapter 5. Now, Amos is not is one of the minor prophets, and he's not one that, that gets quoted very often. But in Amos chapter 5, there is a powerful passage of Scripture in which the Lord is instructing the people of Israel. And what has happened is that Israel has become so consumed in their forms of worship, in their festivals, in their ceremonies, in their songs that they sing, and they've been fooled into thinking that those are pleasing to God when their life is no reflection of his glory at all. And he speaks to this in, Isaiah, in Amos 5. And this is what he says. And guys, this is powerful and this is strong. And this is hard to hear, but we need to hear it as believers. Verse 21. God says to the church there, to the Israelites, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench. To me, even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring your choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. 
Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But verse 24, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. Now this is a heavy word from God to his people. And so if, if, if you can't catch what he's trying to say in that, what I want to do really quickly is let's take this and put it into 21st century American church vernacular. And I believe this is what God would say to us if this applied to us during this time. And you can decide for yourself whether this applies to you or not. God would say to us as his people today in this culture, your Sunday morning best, your dress-up clothes, your orders of worship, your hymns, your Hillsong worship songs, your banners, your raised hands, your Lord's Supper services, and your out loud amens mean absolutely nothing to me. Because your everyday life does not glorify me And make my righteousness known to the people around you. Paul says that true and proper worship is the living sacrifice of our whole person. Now don't get me wrong. Don't think that God is saying he doesn't like it when we sing songs to him. Of course he does. But if we're only singing songs. And the songs are not an expression of a life that is being sacrificed to God Monday through Saturday, then when we come in here on Sunday and sing our songs, God says, that's really empty. Here's the big truth. If you're, I didn't give you notes and blanks to fill in. I just want you to write things down as the Lord impresses it on your heart. But this is a big point here. Worship is not a scheduled event. Worship is a perpetual lifestyle. And I'm afraid too many of us have completely gotten that all wrong. Including me. Now, Paul continues. And he says, he's told us so far that a lifestyle of worship that brings glory to God in every part and every aspect of every day of our lives that we live is what true and proper worship is. He's, he's brought us to that point. Now, he's going to tell us there's a secret. But it's not so secret. Where does a perpetual lifestyle of worship come from? How, how do we get to the place where that characterizes our lives? Look at the very beginning of verse 1. It's, here's the answer. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. There it is. That's your answer. A sacrificial lifestyle of worship comes from the grateful heart of someone who has clearly seen the mercy of God on their own life. Now, if you take time, it's very interesting, the book of Romans. If you take time to read and study the entire book of Romans, what you'll find is that everything that Paul writes in chapters 1 through 11 is describing the mercies of God. Paul spends chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 explaining to the church, this is what God has done for you. And then he begins chapter 12 with this verse, and he says, Therefore, and therefore means because of everything I've told you in chapters 1 through 11, therefore I urge you in view of God's mercies, 
All 11 chapters, I've been explaining to you the mercy of God. Now, what is your response to offer your body as a living sacrifice to God? Two of the most precious mercies of God are his love and his grace. In chapter 1, Paul talks about the grace that we have received through Christ. In chapter 2, he talks about the kindness that God shows to those whom he saves. Chapter 3, he talks about the forgiveness that God provides for our sin. Chapter 4, he talks about the righteousness that Christ shares with us as believers. In chapter 5, he talks about the hope that we have in Christ and in heaven. In chapter 6 and 7, he talks about the freedom that God provides us from our sin. Chapter 8, he talks about the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and intercedes to the Father for us. In chapter 9, he talks about the glory of God and how God shares his glory with those that he saves. And in chapter 11, he talks about the sovereignty of the mercy of God. Grace, kindness, forgiveness, righteousness, hope, freedom, the Holy Spirit, glory, sovereignty, and mercy. What else do we need to respond to God in worship? A great song? Really? That's what we're waiting on. Paul says, in view... Of God's mercies, you offer your bodies as living sacrifices. We will only have the ability and the desire to worship God if we have experienced firsthand the mercies of God. Apart from the mercies of God, there is no worship. There may be songs, there may be raised hands, there may be ceremonies, but there's not worship. If we're believers and we've come into a place of worship together to respond to the mercies of God and we don't, either because we choose not to or because we justify reasons why we can't. You ever been guilty of that before? Well, I just can't worship today because of this or because of this or something... This hinders my worship, something in the room, something I'm hearing. Some, or, or either we, we just choose not to because we just don't feel like it. If that's what we do, it's not because the music's not good. And it's not because the sermon is weak and doesn't feed you. It's not because the wall's painted the wrong color. If you come into corporate worship and you don't worship it simply, and you're a believer, it's simply because you've forgotten the mercies of God. You've forgotten how graceful God has been to you. It's not, it's not because the songs weren't good or the message wasn't good. It's because your heart has forgotten. Men, I'll speak to the men for a second. Do you guys, do you ever forget how beautiful your wife is? Ladies, do you ever forget how much you love your husbands? Parents, those of you who have kids, do you ever forget how amazing your kids are? I do. I forget those things because life is busy and hectic and 
And sometimes my response to my wife and my response to my kids does not reflect how awesome they are. If I'm having a bad day, I can take it out on my kids. If I'm having a bad day, I can take it out on my wife. It doesn't reflect. I I, I forget. I can easily forget how great they are. But then, do you know what it's like to have something happen that helps you remember? Say you're at a class reunion or you're around people who've never met your wife and, and one of your old buddies from high school says to you, your wife's across the room and, she's, and he says, man, your wife is gorgeous. How in the world did you manage that? And then you, you reflect and you look across the room at her and you go, wow, you know what, he's right, she, she's beautiful. Same thing, ladies, with you and the way you view your husbands. Maybe something happens that helps you remember how much you love them, how great they are. Maybe somebody at church on one of those days when your kids are driving you nuts and they come out of Sunday school and their Sunday school teacher comes to you and says, you know what, I love your son, I love your daughter. Because they are, this is what they did in class or this is what they said and, and it was, I, I love them so much. And your first response is usually, really? (laughs) Like, they were driving me nuts on the way here. I wanted to kill them. But something comes along and reminds you of how precious and special and amazing the people you love really are. And and when that love, when when someone says something about your wife, and you remember how beautiful your spouse is to you, those feelings rekindle in your heart. You remember, you remember what it felt like when you saw them walk down the aisle. Those, that first year you were married, you remember the feelings and emotions, how much love you felt for them. When, when you remember how awesome your kids are, you think of the memories of when they were born, when you first saw them and as you watched them grow up. And you remember those things. And then your response and your expression of your love to your spouse and your kids change. Because you remember how great they are. Your gratitude and love for your family didn't come from the person who reminded you. That guy at your family reunion that pointed out how beautiful your wife was, they didn't give you love and gratitude for your wife. The love and gratitude that you feel for your spouse comes from your own love for them, your own relationship with them. All someone else has done is simply reminded you of something that you've forgotten. And can, I, and can I say to you this morning that people like us, pastors, worship leaders like Kevin, musicians, praise team members, sound technicians, we cannot create gratitude for God's mercy in your heart. We cannot create love for God in your heart. Our job is to remind you of how amazing God is so that you spend the entire week leaving here remembering His mercy and giving your whole life to Him in worship 
all week long, and then you come back in here next Sunday, and because you've offered your body as a living sacrifice all week long, you come in, and it doesn't matter what songs we're singing. It doesn't matter what color the wall is or what the preacher's preaching about because you've already worshipped all week long, and you come in, and you're like, whatever, whatever you got, whatever you want to remind me of about how great God is, I'm good with it because he really is great. And we sing the songs, not looking for the songs to create worship in us, but worship is already present, and the song just reminds us, you know what, God is awesome. He is great. Praise Him, praise Him. Jesus, our blessed Redeemer. Man, He redeemed me this week from some crazy stuff. And constantly the words that you sing are reminders of how great God is. And then worship comes out of you. It doesn't come out of the songs. It doesn't come off the stage. It comes out of you. So for some, the hymns of our faith is what helps you remember the most. Those Stamps Baxter shape note songs. Y'all know what I'm talking about. That's what, that's, when you hear those, that helps you remember the, the mercies of God. And if that's the case, if those are the songs that help you remember, then you sing them. And you sing them loud, even if you can't sing. You don't know what shape anything means on those notes, but you sing them. And sing them loud. But let your singing be a response to the mercy of the God you're singing about, not just the song that's talking about God. Do you see the difference? Let your response of worship be because of what God has done, not because of the way the song makes you feel. The same thing is true for the new songs, for the songs that that you guys like, for the songs that lots of us like. If those are the songs that help you remember how great God is, then listen to them and sing them. And sing them loud, but let the God of the song be your object of worship, not the song. When you raise your hand during a song, don't raise your hand because musically this is the part of the song where it builds up and this is the part where I feel like I'm supposed to raise my hands. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Well, that's when everybody raises their hands, right? No. Let your hand be raised as a response from what is happening in your heart because this song that's being sung is reminding me of the glory of God. And the glory of God is building up in me so much and I'm so overwhelmed by it, I can't help but do this. It has nothing to do with the song except that it's the prompter and the reminder to me of how awesome God is. I think it's okay for us to have preferences. I think he's okay with that. I really think that if we were to come to God and he were to be able to come here today and we were to put him on the stage and ask him, God, what songs do you like for us to sing and worship? I think God would look at us and say, you know what, I really don't care. Sing whatever you want to sing. Because it doesn't matter to me what songs you're singing. As long as your worship is for me, And the songs that you sing glorify me. And the songs that you sing prompt a response in your heart to me. Sing whatever you like. I really don't care. 
Worship does not come from hymns. Worship doesn't come from worship bands or stages or lights. Worship doesn't come from a building or the atmosphere that you create in it. Worship doesn't come from tradition. Neither does worship come from new innovation. And worship does not come from suits, ties, skinny jeans, or V-neck t-shirts. Worship does come from the hearts of people. Worship does come from overwhelming gratitude. Worship does come from humble spirits. Worship does come from a changed life offered to God every single day. And worship, most of all, comes from people who used to be dead. But now they're alive. That's where worship comes from.